right, everyone. Welcome back to Half Bite, episode five, Late Night Vibes. It is currently 10.53 p.m. and we have just started recording, so who knows how long this is going to go. Um, but yeah, um, Pratish, I, I think we were just before we started recording, you were talking about with Tom about some Dutch cybersecurity things. So lay it on us. What's the news for this week? All right. So I'll get to that, but I'm saving sort of the best for last. Uh, for all the listeners, if anyone remembers, uh, I talked previously about a dependency confusion attack, which was basically the thing where you use the package names of internal packages for big companies, and then your software basically just downloads that. Those kind of attacks are now much, much more frequent with the two most popular ones being PyPy and NPM. Uh, they've been flooded with over 5,000 uh, such sort of dependency attacks. Uh, and it just kind of goes to show how, you know, you want to take advantage of every sort of, or attackers want to take advantage of every thing that they can get. Another interesting, there was a, there was a survey done by a group called Link Software, and they found that 50% of all their respondents think that companies don't take cybersecurity seriously enough. So among other things, there wasn't a restriction by IT departments on tools with low security standards. So I could bring in a tool and just start using it and my IT department wouldn't say anything, it just regardless of how secure it was. Uh, there was no restrictions or even advice given on security since pandemic and work from home started, which is an issue if you deal with any kind of sensitive information. And I think it was something like 75% of them said they use uh, some form of personal device for business work, which is less than ideal. So uh, that was sort of the, the bad side of sort of cybersecurity news. Then there was a recent thing, which was cybersecurity and cybercrime, which Tom, which Tom and I were discussing. Uh, so there's, there's, a group, there's a group called Sky ECC. They're a Canadian sort of communications provider. And they basically provide you with sort of what could be considered like sort of getting very close to peak privacy and security in a phone. Uh, it's basically a phone with the camera, mic, and GPS disabled, which encrypts all communications through the phone and deletes messages within 30 seconds from the native device. Uh, there's a feature where you can enter a panic password to wipe the entire phone and remove all evidence. So you can see how this might be useful for sort of, you know, government dissidents or in sort of repressive regimes or like high stakes journalism, things like that. Uh, but obviously, if it's good for them, it's also get, it also gets abused by criminals, just like anything does. Uh, so it was very, very popular among criminals. And there was a collaborative effort by Dutch, French and Belgian authorities. And they managed to crack the encryption of Sky ECC. Uh, I need to read more in depth about it. But apparently, they've somehow managed to crack it, which isn't an issue with, I think it was something that they found a flaw in the encryption algorithm they were using, which is Another warning for companies, don't try and make your own encryption algorithm, just use what's known and what works well. Uh, interestingly, Sky ECC has refuted these claims, which I guess, to my mind, they obviously have to do that because it's sort of damaging for their image. Like, you know, you're a secure and private provider and your encryption suddenly gets cracked. But that was a win on the cybercrime fighting front and potentially a loss on the criminal side of things. So overall, like moral considerations, do you think the sort of encryption technique, you said it could be both used for good and for bad, but overall that specific application of, of whatever encryption it was, do you think it's overall a good thing or overall a bad thing? I know it's hard to gauge that, but like in terms of that specifically, what do you think? I mean, 
for Sky ECC in particular, they have a reputation for being used by criminals. So it's it's not like I'm not too uh, split on saying you know oh yeah it was a, it was a good thing that they were cracked because they're generally used by criminals. For encryption in general, however, I feel like it's more a thing that like should be there and every sort of provider should should give you because one it guarantees sort of privacy, right? Because if I send one of you guys a message, I can be safe in knowing that facebook or you know whatever google or whoever whoever is like providing me that platform they don't have the ability to read my messages and as a result no government has the ability to read my messages because a message i send you today could be taken out of context 10 years down the line and i could get in trouble for it or it could be uh, an opinion i expressed today which is considered unfavorable 10 years down the line and things like that and so it's sort of uh, it's sort of a both peace of mind and I guess encryption in general, sorry to go off on a tangent, I guess, but encryption in general is just a thing I view as good because it's sort of that uh, that idea of if someone is watching, you're always going to change uh, how you act so that you don't do anything that compromises you, right? So you never have that level of comfort and communication. Uh, but yeah, I guess in this, so basically in this specific scenario with Sky ACC, who's renowned for being like, criminals uh criminal used by criminals it's probably probably a good thing interesting yeah i mean never really thought about like engaging the moral considerations of all these cybersecurity acts you, you hear about like whether it's overall because you could even argue that when things do get cracked and they're used for bad things in the grand scheme of things they might be a good thing because now they've they've found that hole in the security thing obviously you know i'm not uh, too read up on that, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, anyways, um, I wanted to touch on something cool that me and Tom got the chance to do today in the last period, um, which was our computer science class. Um, we actually got to teach, um, which we got to teach the basics of neural networks and genetic algorithms using neural networks um, to the rest of our class, actually, and we recorded it. And it's going to be sent to the other class as well. So that was really cool. That was a good, a cool experience to do. I was unfortunately online, so I had to resort to drawing diagrams and kind of talking over them. But uh, I found it really cool because, in my opinion, teaching is one of the best forms of learning you can ever do. Because while I was teaching, I was realizing like gaps in my knowledge and things that I wasn't really saying right. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should go back and actually review those things and see if I can deep my, deepen my understanding about that. Um, for example, I was talking about like how neural networks are actually like how the outputs are actually calculated. And I realized I missed out one thing. Um, just thinking back to it now. Um, it was about activation functions. I completely forgot to mention that. That's something that's really technical. But um, then I realized, okay, maybe I should go back and actually review them and know exactly what they are so I can explain them better and not forget them, you know? But uh, yeah, it was a joint thing between me and Tom. Uh, so Tom, what did you think about that? And do you think, would you be down to do some of that in the future? Yeah. Um, yeah, as you said, I quite liked it as well. Like teaching is obviously, it shows you the gaps in your knowledge for which I had many. So yeah, that was quite evident. Um, yeah, I think we sort of went into it without any preparation and ended up talking about neural networks, how every single tutorial on the internet talks about neural networks, which when I was learning were all completely useless because they were like, 
or it's an interconnected thing of weighted connections between nodes and all of that stuff. And like none of it made sense. So I have a feeling we sort of fell into that trap where we started talking about talking about things that we expect the audience to know. So I think our teacher and some of our classmates were quite confused because for us, like the neural network structure is obviously quite, now that we've had some experience with it, it's quite easy to understand. But if you know absolutely nothing, it, it can be quite daunting when you tell them, all right, these are nodes, these are uh, weights. And at each node, we calculate the weighted sum and do the activation function. All of that stuff is gibberish to someone who doesn't know anything. So I think if we were to do it again, we'd have to do it much more high level. It's so hard to explain stuff like that high level though, without actually going to the technical stuff. Cause if you just say, like you said, oh, it's a neural network. We give inputs, we get outputs. Like that's as high level as I think, but like going deeper down, is just like kind of a necessity. And I guess once Aman and brother see the recording, they can gauge how good it was, I guess. And I want to do something else about it because we didn't get to touch on um, some of the other stuff we've been looking at, like Q-learning. And even, we didn't even look at stuff within genetic algorithms that I think we could have touched on as well, like um, NEAT as well, which I, I guess is also very technical, but uh, we could have talked about that as well. But yeah, that was that was really fun. I feel like, I guess, to, to give you guys more, more credit than you're giving yourselves, uh, I feel like it's slightly difficult to aim to teach like a, a significant chunk of a really complicated topic in you know one 45-ish minute lesson yeah because like especially for, for things like neural networks which are so many different facets which i know basically nothing about but it's like for, for that kind of a thing it's got to be really difficult to try and teach everything in in sort of one go so yeah i did not feel like 45 minutes to me honestly i think one thing that i did take away from it is that it's really good when um, members of the class um, actually go out and start to teach themselves stuff uh, and teach the rest of the class stuff. And I think it shouldn't be solely us. I think anytime any one of us has a sort of interest beyond the course, they should have the opportunity to teach it because I think it's so cool. But like having a whole lesson on like different types of encryption and like practical implementations of that, I think would be really cool because it's just kind of expanding our horizons and seeing what we could do with that. I'm on like, if you have a, if you're proficient in Node.js, like if you wouldn't wanted to do like a crash course and like how to use it and how to link it up and like the basics of it, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's really cool. And again, extending, extending beyond the course, because that's something that's very emphasized in CS that if you want to pursue CS, you got to, you know, kind of extend your horizons and stuff like that. Not to be like the, um, like the person that brings everyone down, but I am concerned with time because I think like, I obviously I'd really love to see Aman present Node.js and uh, Pratchett talk about cybersecurity, but like, I'm always wondering how come we have the time to present this neural network stuff if we're, we've got one NEA to write, <laughs> we've got a bunch of what databases theory we're learning now and whatever theory, I just feel like it, the time might be better invested in actually learning the course and then doing this stuff outside of school to people who are actually interested. So like the hackathon we did, say we ran like a student led tutorial thing, maybe Thursday after school. 
have a feeling that would be oh, the people that would come would be interesting interested in the subject and like we're not wasting any time on what we could have spent with like theory and stuff yeah i, I pretty much agree with everything tom just said um I, I guess to like a certain extent uh running these crash courses or if we were to do crash courses i wouldn't even know where to begin especially in like a 45 minute period it's just a, it's such a small period of time to to learn anything, even to like learn the basics, all the like tutorials and videos, most of them extend for like at least an hour and a half just for the basics. And then to actually learn how to, or to understand everything, you'll have to spend days by yourself just going through code and seeing what you understand, what you don't understand, and then build up the actual application. So I think teaching it's kind of hard unless you, you start from like a really high abstract level and then build it down to something um, where the students can understand. And then from there, get into to the actual like code of it and then sort of, I guess, brush through stuff. Uh, I guess we see a lot of that with um, our current project of PHP because we're sort of being given like a framework for the entire thing and we're just adding some files here and there and some code. Uh, so if you don't know, we're working on a PHP library system right now with one of our teachers and he's basically giving us, or Mr. Forsyth actually, he's giving us all the code for the PHP stuff. and where we're just implementing some aspects of it. And most of, it, of the code is either his own code or uh, for example, we did a login system and a signup system today. And most of the code is just copy pasted from the website. So most of us don't understand the actual, um, like we don't understand the code. We understand what it does, but we don't understand the actual code itself, which is an abstraction in itself, but it's not the greatest tool if you actually want to learn about web development. And I feel like the same thing would have to apply if you were to do, if you were to do a crash course. Um, you'll have to give people a lot of like the 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 low level stuff, the low level code, and then have them implement the high level code, and then you can sort of bring them down into the low level code over time if you had a long enough crash course. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, obviously, depends on the field as well depends on complex the actual like framework or technique you're teaching is because obviously for our neural network stuff we had to water it down insanely we obviously didn't do any like actual code implementations which is a thing in itself which you can represent in so many different ways but normally you'd represent it using like matrices and stuff and in some cases where um, the language you're using doesn't have a built-in matrix library uh, you do have to download an external package or make your own matrix library which i believe tom did for his flappy bird thing um so that's a whole new thing in itself um but yeah tom did a really good segue when he talked about how uh if we did a, stu uh, a student-led sort of workshop or activity thursday after school we are actually planning to do a beginner hackathon mainly based in python but any language really um next thursday after school so to anyone that goes to dc who's watching this absolutely anyone all your groups you don't have to be in the cs society which is where we originally posted or are planning to um host this hackathon you don't have to be in that society if you want to join uh just join more details will be coming soon there'll be posters all over school we'll be sending out an email as well um and it's just kind of it's a complete beginner course you don't even have to take a lick of computer science you can if you just know basic python then that's enough this is bare bones um 
beginner coding. We're going to plan to do more higher level hackathons in the future, hopefully. But uh, yeah, we'll, we're going to send out more details about that soon. Um, yeah, Tamer, um, speaking of things we do um, outside of the course, um, what do you guys think of this uh, website we're all creating in our top up lesson? We're creating this, um, this website for Mansi International, which is our first client in our top up sessions. And so far, we've made some initial website prototypes and logo designs. Do you guys enjoy this project or what do you, what do you guys think about it? I, I probably had like the easiest job because I just had to make a, make a quick logo because I'm not too good with web designer things, but I'm all right at Photoshop. So it's just like I had to make a quick logo and I, and I thought I thought it was cool, you know, how we're basically doing something for a client. And it was it was kind of nice to see, you know, what we were all working on, sort of the enthusiasm in, in the room, especially from uh, from Mr. Wood. It was it was, you know, sort of cool, cool to see that, you know, we can all do sort of a project for a client together and see how it's, you know, it's sort of a fun sort of collaborative effort. I think yeah, what we're I thought doing it was, now. sorry, <laughs> to interrupt. Yeah, sorry, you go for it, go for it, go for it. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, what I was saying is, I, I thought it was a very nice opportunity to do like one of the first CS projects where we actually collaborate with other people. Because most CS projects is just individual based where occasionally you have people come over and help you either debug or you'd like demonstrate code uh, and then they can suggest improvements. But this is the first project where we work with multiple uh, people especially people we're not used to working with um, and then come up with not only the actual the website itself but also do the entire documentation of the website and do tasks you wouldn't normally expect us to do for example logo designing and rebranding of the company um, looking through all their past history to understand what the company actually does what they sell so we can understand what the style of the website should be and you know how we can sort of improve it and modernize it as much as possible. So that entire, I think, uh, aspect of this entire project is really interesting for me. Um, yeah, I, I think that's sort of unique to, to this um, uh, sort of client project, yeah. Yeah, personally, I'm not also like, web dev isn't my, my thing, obviously either. But um, so because of that, it was a real step outside my comfort zone, again, I, I was I did one of the website templates. Uh, I believe there were three in total that we ended up sending to our client um, initially. But today, I think this morning, actually, um, we sent out a PowerPoint detailing some of the website and logo designs. Um, and yeah, I'm just really not familiar with like actually designing stuff because I don't think I'm a very artistically talented person. And, uh, you know, like I can't, I don't really see um, visual things i don't have a good taste for that kind of stuff basically that's why i could never be a front-end developer that's why i'm not exactly the best for um css and like front-end design yeah again all that stuff um but yeah it was definitely a step outside my comfort zone like it wasn't too difficult uh, initially what we're doing right now but i'm sure it will get more difficult and i'm really excited to actually get into some hard coding stuff you know actually implementing the designs that we built and like all the stuff that we're going to end up um, presenting to our clients. And I hope that we get more clients in the future. So that'll be really fun. The, the one thing I found really cool was sort of seeing this, uh, 
sort of the interaction, the back and forth that you that you have with a client. Because like I've been, I've seen sort of the other side of it. I've seen like the client, what the client sees. Because uh, like, you know, when my parents and stuff had, uh, had, a, had their business and still do have their business, the stuff that they do there, I've seen sort of being a client and what, sort of having to get across your ideas. And it's, it's really cool. I think we're, we're really lucky we have Mr. Mr. Wood to help us with this because he's A, experienced in this field and B, he kind of knows like what questions to ask the client, what's good, what's not good, things like that. So that, you know, that, that was pretty, pretty helpful to have as well. He's very good at extracting information from people, which is what we need. So yeah. That makes it that makes it sound like he's like torturing them too. No, no <laughs> not like that. As in like he knows which questions he needs to ask to get to get the information he needs. Which is I good. I totally agree with Tom. I, I wish I had that because Yeah, that's a that's really, such a good really skill. good skill. Yeah. I was so impressed with this interview when he was interviewing the clients. Um, one thing, one thing I found really interesting like, about like doing articulate. this project is yeah, yeah, I had no idea what was happening, to our, but to I'm, our I'm NEA, sure it went well, right? Because <laughs> we have to do, you know, how like for the, for the NEA, uh, we have to do like this entire analysis section, which is like interviewing potential users and your client and stuff, and do a full investigation into the project and like the feasibility and stuff, and what you need, what you don't need, and the, and all you know, all all that kind of like really specific nitty gritty stuff. Uh, so, I mean, I, I found that, I found it really interesting how there's like a parallel between that, which is just like a project we're doing for our A-level and then this like real life client, the interview and like talking to them and, uh, and you know, and basically seeing what they need. I found, I found that kind of cool. And then we've kind of done like a section of the design for the NEA, like the whole prototyping thing, because we just made like a bunch of prototypes. Like we they put together two or three in that PowerPoint that we sent them. And it's like it's it's interesting how sort of a real client is mirroring what we do for our NEA. I just found that like really sort of fascinating, especially for you guys that are doing a client-based project. Tamara and I are doing an investigate investigation-based project, which I think is more like a university dissertation or whatever. But like uh, your client-based project is going to be very similar to um, like a real-world project say if you want to become a web developer this uh flip-flop thing or this mancy international website we've been working on that's a very good example of what it might be for the future so yeah it, it just hit me how like when i was first entering the nea and like starting my analysis i'm like why do i have to do all this stuff man why can't i just code it and probably okay it makes sense i have to test it uh and like sort of write up some stuff but why do I have to analyze everything? Why do I have to design everything? Why don't I just make it? And then like, now it's hit me. Like if I had just gone straight into the code, I would be completely lost with my, uh, with my whole project. Cause although it's a, it's a drag writing the NEA, um, the design section so far for me has been really helpful in giving me a, a rough overview of what to say and what to do and what to code. Um, because I've identified a lot of problems in my overarching project structure. So I have to go back and kind of tweak it a little bit and like update some stuff here and fix this stuff there. So I, I understand, I finally understand what Mr. Wood says when he says that it's an iterative process. You don't just finish your analysis and then you, you don't finish analyzing the problem and then immediately go to designing it while you're designing the problem or designing your solution rather. 
we might identify a hole in that and go back and reanalyze the problem in some way. And it can work like that across all different sort of phases of design. Like, I don't want to think of it as NEA sections anymore. There are literally just phases of like making something at this point, whether it's client-based or investigative-based. It's, it's kind of just paramount to making a good project, basically. And I just like, I'm glad that I finally understand that now because I feel like it'll be really useful for the future for all of us. Um, should we, you know, decide to take up some kind of project for a client or decide to do some sort of cool investigative thing? So, yeah. Yeah, I thought the NA was really cumbersome in, in terms of the write-up. But when I actually started doing the analysis and uh, everything started to flow and then understanding that the write-up's not just meant to be what you're doing, it's more meant to be like a log or like a, almost like a diary where you write everything down of what you're doing, why you're doing it, your thoughts, your um, what you like and what you don't like about certain implementations of your current solution or your current project or your proposed solution and so on and so forth. Um, that's a very different aspect to coursework to what we're used to, where typically coursework would be a very formal uh, addressal of what you've done or what you're doing, whereas the NA is sort of very continuous and very fluid, which is, I think, was kind of useful in terms of some of the projects that we will hopefully be working on in the future. And I was kind of surprised by the analysis. I didn't think the analysis would be very in-depth for me for my type of project. Um, I thought it was just going to be about like one or two client meetings, maybe an investigation on existing solutions, and then that's pretty much it. But it was a lot more in-depth than I thought it would be. And um, I'm glad I went as in-depth as I did because I understood a lot more uh, about my problem, which I didn't think I would understand. I've got a quick question about what uh, Aman and Tamer uh said just now um for the like when you do an analysis in your design section do you get graded for the analysis part because i i've i've not handed in my analysis yet because i just got the track but i've been thinking of so many extra things i would have had to analyze if i would have started the uh, design section for example um image distortion i would only have been able to find out if i had started prototyping which i had so would that extra analysis in the design section, would that, would that count under the analysis marks or the design marks? I, personally, I, I, I think um, I, I said something wrong because we don't, I wouldn't actually write, oh, okay, here's my new like, analysis of a certain part of the problem in my design section. I would go back to the original analysis and actually change something there because it's not like, it doesn't have to be, although it's continuous and iterative, it's not like it has to be completely chronological, if that makes sense. Um, and I think in terms of the marking, um, it doesn't really affect it. As long as there's, I think, an important distinction to make is that I think as long as sections don't contradict each other, Mr. Wood did say when he handed back my analysis, this is really good as long as you don't contradict it in your design section or any other section. But yeah, that, that's also, I guess, a, a parallel to real world applications. You have to make sure everything's consistent in your, in, in your phases of actually making something. You, have, you can't um, say you're going to do something and then not say it. And you say, oh, because it was too hard. Or, oh, this language doesn't allow it. You have to continually be thinking about that kind of stuff before you actually um, 
you actually go out and do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's the one thing I don't like about the NEA. The fact that if you realize something, you can just go back to the analysis, make a change to it, and then continue with your design section. I prefer the, I prefer if there's a system where you can document everything in terms of, okay, so then you go into your design section, you realize something, and then go back into your analysis, but add like, so each like paragraph or each uh, entry would be logged. So when you would do a new um, sort of realization of let me change this requirement, it would be logged as a second requirement change. And then you can actually see how it's changing. I think that would be a better approach uh, to the entire NEA because it feels kind of like a cheat thing where you would say, oh, I did realize this when you didn't initially realize it. Um, I, I guess that's in terms of if you're thinking about the NEA as a log, if you're thinking about it as an actual uh, document, then I guess it makes more sense to have everything just um, consistent, but sort of continuous and fluid iterative process. I mean, honestly, personally, the way the way I kind of look at the NEA is it's not so much supposed to be a, I'd, I'm not looking at so much as a diary, I'm more looking at it as like a, you know, you know how you have like those random, when you when you go to figure out how to do a problem, you have those random medium articles that you come across, right? And it's like, uh, oh yeah, here's here's the problem. Here's like a bunch of backstory about the problem. Here's how I solved the problem. Here's me testing the problem. Here's what was right and wrong with the problem. Uh, I, I kind of look at it like one of those, like, you know, oh, here's, here's my analysis of the problem. Here's my design for the problem. Here's my implementation. Here's me testing it. Here's my evaluation of, the, of how well I solved it. I'm looking at it more like kind of one of those where it's this weird sort of power, weird sort of gray area between a tutorial and a, and a blog post. I mean, I don't know if that's the right way to do it. Like, I haven't gotten my analysis back. So if it's the wrong way to do it, then I'm completely failing this so far. But, you know, it's just, it's just a different way of looking at things, I suppose. Uh, I mean, failing is a strong word. I mean, no one's, no one's going to fail their analysis. They just get feedback and see what they're going to do wrong. Um, but yeah, random tangent I just thought about because Aman literally looks like he's about to fall asleep. And he has been looking like that for the past 20 minutes because it's currently... 11.34 p.m. So, you know, um, what do you guys, what's your optimum time to code? Or actually, you know, scratch that. I, I think of it in coding, like, largely, but, like, just doing work in general. I guess the majority of which for us at some points is going to be just coding stuff and working on our on whatever projects we're doing. So, like, what time do you think your brain works at optimum efficiency when you code? Because... For me, I've still been experimenting. Sometimes I'll literally just like, like at this time right now, I'll start coding. Just like, okay, might just work on a little bit there and I end up staying up until like 3 a.m. Sometimes it'll just be literally like not even late. It's like, it's the weirdest times. Like there's like those stereotypes where people are like, oh, I stayed up coding till like 4 a.m. Or I woke up at 6 a.m. and started coding and was really productive in the morning. I'm just all over the place. Like I can literally just like do something at like 6 p.m. in the evening and just like I'll be most productive then. Like I really have no schedule when it comes to that. And something I've been working on because I do know that depending on like your personal like internal clock or circadian rhythm, like there is an optimum time to do work and specifically an optimum time to do code for programmers because coding is kind of its own thing in general. 
I mean, for me, it's not so much like a time of day. Like I'm, I'm not one of those sort of midnight, midnight programmers. I can't do late night. When I say late night, I mean like, you know, 11, 30, 12, 1, 2, 2 a.m. kind of things. I can't do those late night uh, programming sort of uh, times. Uh, but I find just any time, any point of time where I have like out a couple of hours to just sit, right? So if I have like you know three hours where I'm free, I have I have nothing to do, and I know I have that time, I'll just sit. I can just sit and program because for me it's more about having like a continuous block of time than having like specific sort of hours of the day where I can pick and choose things. Although I will say like afternoon, evening types so are like three, four, or like maybe somewhere between 10 and 12 is generally when I'm like, when I feel like I have the most time and also feel like I'm, I'm most in the zone to do any kind of work. For me, I can't code during school for some reason. I can't code like around people. I get distracted very easily. And if I do try code in school and I've tried it a lot of times during my freeze, I just sort of stare blankly at the computer screen. Um, and either I just don't write code or I just write gibberish code, which isn't very efficient. Um, so yeah, I can't really work well then. Most of the times I can just code whenever I come home after school. Um, if I have projects due or I have deadlines, then I don't like doing it, but I can code at nighttime. Um, if I, if need be, I can do it until like one or 2 AM. Um, maybe after some coffee or some tea um or like red bull or something which will help a lot but most of the time 10 o'clock eight to ten i would say is my optimum time for coding um because i like to get my homework done after i come home from school don't you sleep at uh, 7 p.m oh uh, <laughs> my schedule is a bit weird sometimes like I, i've gotten up at 4 4 a.m or 3 30 a.m uh and then i can just get up i'll take a shower and then i'll I can code and sit down and code for a while after I have some breakfast. It's a, it's a versatile schedule. I guess. You're crazy. I could never wake up at 4 a.m. and start coding. That's just not possible for me. Um, weirdly, I have different coding times to like schoolwork times. I prefer doing schoolwork from like uh, 10 a.m. to about 1 p.m. And then coding... I don't know, every Thursday after school, I'm in the mood to code. Like today, for example, I, I just randomly started some uh, some tutorial on uh, Daniel Schiffman's The Nature of Code uh, series, which I'll probably talk about in another episode. But yeah, I just, I think uh, coding after schools on Thursday is my best. I don't know why, but it's just when I feel in the mood to code. I agree with Aman as well because I cannot code at all in school. Like, it just doesn't work. I don't know why. It's weird. Just in case the viewers are curious, uh, wanted to explain what your coding train project was because I thought it was really cool. Wait, the one I just did now? Yeah, or the, the, one... wave, the waves and stuff. Oh, all right. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's this tutorial on... Uh, Daniel Schiffman's YouTube channel called The Coding Train about um, additive waves, which sounds a lot more complex than it is. It's basically just, well, I chose a random number, five, five sine waves added together. And then at each point, um, 
I take the amplitude of the wave and I add it to all of the five random waves. And then in the end, that gives me one very satisfying random looking wave. And I've just been experimenting with different amplitudes, different phases, different speeds and different colors. And it all just making it look very pretty. It's, it's got nothing to do with my NEA. It's got nothing to do with any project. It's just fun. It's just genuinely fun coding with like, a little bit of OOP practice and stuff like that. So, when you first showed it to me, I thought it was a sound wave. Do you think you could hook it up to like different sounds where, um, like different frequencies or different, uh, like heights? You generate music wide values in a, Yeah, you could. Do you, do you mean? I don't like know if it would be music. It'd be kind of ugly, but yeah, try like frequencies. Just, just plug it into an oscilloscope, bro. You don't need an additive waves program for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, it's kind of cool because we have an optics test uh, on Amon, Amon, your sleep deprivation is showing. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where is the sound coming? How did sound lead you to the optics and waves test? Uh, no, because we have the we have the optics test and like on waves and it includes superposition. And then your project uh, reminded okay. me of that. Yeah, but, like, that's another that you've hooked up the sine waves. When yeah, you do projects sense. that sort of are linked to other fields for specifically physics i find that so cool my diffraction simulator was so fun to do because i was applying the knowledge i'd learned and i, I want to do one um for further math because we're doing vectors and they're a bit annoying sometimes to visualize so i thought why not just make my own visualizer haven't started that yet but it's just a cool idea in the back of my head about how to represent like the vector equations of lines and, and planes in 3d space and like intersections stuff like that it's all been really cool and how it can visualize what the dot product actually does and the, the cross product, all this like really theoretical further math stuff that would take a long time to explain and visualize on your own. I want to make a tool for that just for myself initially, but like if, if other people find it cool as well, that would be, um, that would be really interesting to see. Just a, just a reality check for the rest of our audience. Tamer says it was really satisfying and stuff now, but like the the three the four of us know for a fact he was he was like it was a real pain for him to try and program that we get daily updates of stuff that just breaks or just doesn't work for some oh, reason the diffraction stuff yeah for sure yeah no it was satisfying in the end when it actually worked when the colors actually like behave themselves because i interpolate between like the the visible light spectrum so when your wavelength or sorry yeah when your uh wavelength is higher it's a it's a different color when your wavelength is lower it's it's a different color so it, and based on the slider value kind of um changes colors and obviously the diffraction amount uh changes so the angles change stuff like that it's so satisfying to see in real life because you're applying the equation it's really cool it's kind of cool that all of us take physics in terms of like we have so many possibilities of creating simulations and visualizers yeah that yeah. is a good point uh tamer just a quick question on your uh, diffraction one did you used uh 2d unity correct no, I used uh, 3D actually, but I could have used 2D. I'm just not too familiar with 2D. So I just find using 3D in a 2D way is so much easier for me. Just, <laughs> it's, do you think it's, you could do it in TK Inter, like Pygame or something? I tried yeah, doing that's what it. I was, that's in, what I was asking. I tried doing it in TK Inter, but then I remembered I don't know any TK Inter. Then I tried doing it in Pygame and I was like, I'm not doing this in Pygame. And then, uh, <laughs> I, then I just switched to Unity because it's like my go-to now. Isn't 2D Unity just... 3d unity but 
then you don't have to worry about like I don't know. It's so weird and, it, and stuff. It just looks so bad. That's my only problem. Like if my visual, that's another thing. If my visual interface is not like good looking, I don't want to to do it because some of the stuff is so pixelated and I want it to be like high res. But if you just use the stock Unity 2D stuff, it looks so bad. Like if you like, there's this like object called like a it just it's just literally like a doorknob. It's called a knob, and it just like you put it on the screen, and it looks so terrible. So I just I mean, 3D is just better a because I know it better, and b it's just a lot more versatile, and c it just makes you want to code it more. I literally just put blocks on the the ground and then just put the camera above so it looked like top down so this is just 2d but uh yeah and also um just working with vectors and in, in 3d i think is in this case a lot easier than 2d vectors which is strange because you think it'd be the other way around but yeah this is the same <laughs> man that uses adam <laughs> oh yeah, I knew I knew someone was gonna say that. I knew someone was gonna say that when I said I like visual. I don't I don't all understand. All three of us, me, Te- uh, Tom, and Pratish, we all use Visual Studio Code. And Tame just use. It. I use it for to Unity. be fair. Um, I use VS Code for Unity. To be fair, Atom is very good looking. It's very minimalist. It's very like stylish minimalist. That's what I kind of miss. But in general, Visual Studio Code, I like it a bit more than Atom. But I do like the uh, exactly. minimalist and stylish. VS Code overwhelms me sometimes. Not gonna lie. I, I think it can, yeah, but I got used to it right now, so I quite. I don't like know. It. I really like the interface of VS Code. Everything's so clean. I, yeah, but controversial, like, controversial opinion. Vim for the win. You've been using <laughs> that a lot, haven't you? Recently. <laughs> I've been I've been using Vim way too much. It's Wait, just so like, like so, like the actual Vim editor, like. Wait, you actually unironically use Vim. I unironically have used Vim in the terminal to write projects. Bro, like I've sounds, done, um, I've done the least practice. significant. I've programmed the least significant bit steganography entirely in Vim. You might want to explain what Vim is very quickly. Oh yeah, go ahead. And All, right. Explain explain. All right. Yes. Okay. So Vim is a. So you have two ways you can program, right? You have like your graphical uh, sort of text editor kind of ways, which are like Atom and VS Code and I don't know, like Visual Studio, JetBrains and Idol. Visual Studio. Yeah. Pycharm, Jupiter. Yeah, Repl, Jupiter, all, all those kind of like, you know, sort of big names. And then you have like the sort of text editors that are in your terminal, which are used a lot more on things like servers, right? So on a Linux server where you don't have a GUI, where you don't have a GUI, you're most likely to use a uh, one of those like text-based things. So it's like you have a Nano, you have Vim, you have VI, you have Emacs, you have, all, you have Doom Emacs, you have all of these like variations. One of the most popular ones is called Vim. Uh, it's also the subject of a lot of memes because it's got some very unintuitive uh, uh, keyboard shortcuts. But the whole point of it is that you should never have to, if you're using Vim correctly, you should never have to take your hands off the keyboard, which is something that I do a lot when I'm like programming uh, in general. Like I spend half of my time with my hand on my, my mouse because I'm moving between lines and scrolling. So the whole point of Vim is you never need to take your hands off the keyboard. It's difficult and it's more like a, a way of life kind of thing, but it's it's interesting. And I just felt like, you know, I've, I'm not doing much with my life nowadays. Let's just decide to mess around with Vim for the heck of it. In theory, it sounds practical, but in practice, it sounds cumbersome because it, let's say you want to make a small change to your program and you have to go through each like line um, reference rather than just being able to scroll up and down and see what's happening freely. 
Yeah, so going, I think going it makes it sounds like it makes the debugging a bit harder. I mean, it depends because Vim's also really like expandable because you have extensions and stuff. But I, I agree with you on the fact that scrolling up and down through lines does become a bit of an issue. Because like nothing, or at least nothing that I've found, no command that I've found in Vim really beats the speed of just having like a trackpad or a scroll wheel on a mouse and just scrolling through a hundred lines in a second. So, I mean, there, there is that, but anyways. I think it takes it takes time to actually get used to it. Like, I don't know. Um, I'm sure most of us are aware of this, but um, uh, if you guys know about this competitive programmer, William Lin, right? He uses vim exclusively for his uh contest and you know if you've seen his videos and his his live um, coding competitions that he does and he he's he, i don't know if he streams them but he does film them and put them on his youtube channel um like google kickstart like really big coding competition and he's obviously a you know a champion I, I, he's he won an olympiad for uh uh the u.s in in one year um and for those of you who don't know william lynn he's um a Taiwanese uh, competitive programmer. I believe he's like 19 now only. And he did get accepted into MIT a year or two ago. So I think he uh, got in. And he's just insane, man. Like he, if you look at some of his videos, he, the way he codes and the way he thinks, you can just see that A, he's just intelligent in general. B, he has studied, actually, like he has studied computer science theory because he knows a lot about these efficient algorithms and data structures that you can use in certain cases. And he knows how to problem solve the way he dissects a problem and can instantly see, okay, what is this thing actually asking me? And the way that he goes about it in the competitions is like just something else. Obviously he has, I'm assuming he has a lot of experience, even though he's only 19, he's very young, but I feel like he has been doing it for a long time and has been diligent in his practice, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, he, um, he uses Vim exclusively. Um, and if you look at him, the way that he uses the shortcuts, he is able to um, navigate around his, the editor at lightning fast speed, um, faster than I would without using Vim, using just regular mouse and keyboard and combination um, because he's, I'm assuming he's just used it for so long. Um, it's, it's, and also it just ha so happens his typing speed is insane. I believe it's like 150 or 160. Like if you listen to his videos, it's literally just like clack, clack, clack for like 20 minutes straight. It's insane. But yeah, I, I feel like Vim could be beneficial, but uh, I haven't gone around. I haven't got, had the commitment to actually use it exclusively so I can actually get used to it. But yeah. Here's a, here's a scary thought. Uh, William Lynn is only a couple of years older than us, if you yeah. think about it. He's 19, I believe, yeah, or 18. Yeah, so he's, he's you know, one, one and a half, maybe two years older than us. Yeah, that's, that's something else, man. There's some cracked people in this world. This is true. This is very true. Rose what are your thoughts about competitive programming? I like didn't know it. it existed until a month. Uh, Tamer just mentioned it now. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you mean like game jams and stuff, or like uh, not game jams? Like, um, where you enter for it's like a hackathon, where like Google. We're Pixar's planning one next you... week, bro. Yeah. Is that yeah, is that? Oh, you mean like that? Oh. Yeah, that's like, competitive programming. It's a competition. Uh, okay, gotcha. Where like the problems don't have context. Yeah, it gives you constraints to the problem because it could tell you, okay, now this num this variable. Uh, or this input to the function 
is between the ranges of, of zero and like 10 to the five. And if it's a st stupidly big number, like 10 to the hundred, you know, you might not have to use a different technique because you can't brute force it. Otherwise it'll time out on most problems. And like, yeah. like, like said, even with solutions within the time frame, there'll be multiple solutions, but inevitably some solutions will be up a lot faster and more efficient than other solutions within the time frame. Yeah, for sure. Competitive programming is, is really cool. And I, it's an entire like field. I want to get better at it. Cause I feel like it'll just speed up my brain because like, if you can do stuff that fast and come to a solution in a, in a limited time and under time pressure, then just going out and doing stuff practically is going to be a piece of cake eventually. It's very iridescent of what universities ask in interviews where you're given a problem you have a time constraint and you need to solve that problem. Yeah. Like Google coding. Taking, yeah. Yeah. And code wars to a certain extent as well. Like I mean, those problems don't have any application. The, the thing I feel is it sort of teaches you how to solve. It sort of gets you, gets you, gets you sort of acclimatized to solving problems on your feet. Right. Which on the one hand, yeah, is really handy for interviews. But on the other hand, it's just like, life skill right you can quickly come up with like a solution to a problem uh be that a computational one or like a real life one it's a pretty nifty skill to have this reminded me of um what we were doing with mr wood with those interviews yeah yeah that's also what he's gonna do and i think it's so great that we're actually doing that because we're not only we're not just doing the, the course content even though that's important um we're gonna you know hopefully gonna be applying for companies where we're going to have to do this uh, and these kinds of interviews and solve these kinds of problems. Um, so it's good that we're getting a, a first taster of it and like actually looking at how these interviews are conducted, what questions might be asked and how you, how the interview kind of pushes you to like do things in a certain way. So, yeah. And that's actually, it's part of our spec, which I wasn't expecting. It says you have to be able to articulate your, your, your coding and like be able to trace stuff. It, I, I didn't know it was on there, but yeah, it's cool. Um, speaking of uh, like beneficial thing or life skills, um, I think learning to type fast would be extremely helpful. For like sure. I'm going to go on, on a bit of a rant here, but it's the 21st century and I have not been taught anything in school. Like we have writing lessons, but we don't have typing lessons to type fast. Like all of this is self-learned and I really want to start typing quick. And I think that if you teach primary schools typing lessons, that those kids will like, I don't know, they'll get like 80 words per minute easy, whereas I'm at like 50 if I try hard. So uh, I wish I schools really actually did writing lessons. Because my not, handwriting's horrible. They don't do not it. Colleges, bro. Not colleges. Primary schools do writing lessons. No, no, primary them. schools, I swear, but whatever writing lessons they do, they don't work on the long run. My handwriting's so messy. You're writing cursive. Bro, I just ignored all the primary school lessons. They said, join your letters. When I joined my letters, my handwriting looks tragic. You know, my in, primary in school, the... we had our own stand. They had like their own alphabet. Like their capital letters are completely different to any other capital letters you, you ever had. Because they were like weird cursors. So, like a T had like a like a W on the top instead of like a like a like a horizontal line. And I you was looking... cursive in school. That's so weird. You yeah, know, it was cursive, but it was like weird cursive. Repton. Oh, oh yeah, it cool. makes sense. I mean, in, in fairness, they did. In fairness, Repton is the same school who made you write with fountain pens. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to, get a, you had to so get a pen messy. license, and I was the last yeah. person in the year to get a pen license. Boys, my handwriting was so boys, bad. 
I never got my pen license. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got my pen license at the end of your, at the end of your five. Like I think we, the last we had a pen license. Five. We had a pen license thing in year six, but nobody got one because they never gave gave them out for some reason. Yeah. I was Bro, calling it I, that if you're the last person to get a pen license, then you're just going to go on and do like good things. And we were all the last people to get our pen licenses <laughs> or not get it. Breaking in. away from the, Bro, from I the still rant. don't have one. <laughs> breaking away from the rant. I actually remember something you guys were talking about William Lin and how he applies the theory of computer science. One of the interview questions we had was you're given a matrix and it can be filled with either zeros or ones. So a collection of ones is what you call um, an island. Uh, yeah. Oh, I've seen awesome. this. How many islands are there? So when I first saw this problem, I was so confused how to solve it. And then I realized something because of my NEA, I have an idea of how to solve it. The way I would solve it is you would use breadth for search traversal. Right. Where every time you hit a one, you would traverse it and then get all the nodes and then add that to a visited nodes array and then find the next one, which is not in that array, and then traverse all of that. And then you keep repeating that over and over again until you finish the entire adjacency matrix. And then you just count the number of um, traversals that you've done. And then that's the number of islands in the entire thing. And then the problem can be extended. What vertices are these islands at? Yeah, because bro, then there was sort like of an such issue. such a hard question. Yeah, I don't even know how it It's on Algo Expert, it just, I believe. It is on Algo Expert. And it was on interview.io, the YouTube channel. Bro, that's and such thought, a good question. What the yeah, hell? Yeah, yeah. And then the only reason I know that because I was doing, I was prototyping something which I don't think I'll end up using for my NEA of doing traversals on a 2D or a matrix. And it's such a weird application of it. I would have never like even thought of that. Yeah. And but the problem can be extended to stuff like, because I was wondering what if you have an island inside of an island? How would you, if you're only doing the bordering thing, how would you check inside? The only way you can do that is breadth first, first traversal or any traversal for a graph. If you just treat each of them as a node. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing about William and how he does that is just like he, he knows when to use which data structures and what kind of algorithms to perform on those data structures. Because does he, he can use C++? He does, yeah. C++ is the standard for like high level competitive programming. Because apparently it's very memory efficient and you it's like, it has very easy access to a lot of data structures that are commonly used. Like you can instantly declare a priority queue and it'll automatically do that. Like you don't have to like, really? up. yeah, you can say like int priority queue, PQ, whatever it's called. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I did a C++ course a while ago, but um, yeah, I haven't really got time to practice it. Um, I want to kind of cut off from this rant as well. Uh, it's getting late. It is 11.59 p.m. currently. We are we have almost hit midnight. Amon's eyes are slowly drooping. I can see he he desperately needs his sleep. Um, so yeah, uh, this wraps up episode five of Half Bite. I hope you we hope you enjoyed and um, stay tuned for new episodes. I'm literally falling asleep right now as well. So uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Good night. Come along to the hackathon next week. Oh yeah, be sure to if you're interested. We'll have a sign up form and everything if you really want. But yeah, good night. Oh, how do they contact you?